This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Views and opinions expressed in the podcast and social media are our own and do not represent that of our places of work. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. to Nothing, Nothing Happens in a Small Town. We have music. Yay, we have creepy music. <laughs> and we actually have like, we're not reading our intro every single time now. Yes, I finally figured out <laughs> how to use the software. It's been a long struggle for y'all who have been listening to us this whole time. It's it's just the thing. I guess maybe if this was our full time, if actual, the part about um doing the recordings was like our main theme that we cared about right not that we don't not care about recording it's that's just not either of us's passion the right. whole playing with the, the recording industry equipment stuff and yeah i mean trying to figure out the equipment and how to use i mean the software is free and it's nice to use but it's confusing and for whatever reason like her mouse works on everything else but this software yeah. so we'll be, we do a test every single time after our initial interesting blunders with sound and it's like we'll be sitting there going our test and it's like test 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 okay now we can stop yeah, sure. Whenever the mice, <laughs> the mouse decides to work properly in this program, and it's right. definitely the program. It's yes. not the mouse. Yes, we everything else. It, it works out. fine. It's really just the oddest thing, and it kind of sucks. But you know, we're we're making it work, and <laughs> <laughs> it's just one of those funny things when you like. I mean. All my life, I've been so into music. I've mm -hmm. got tons of music on my iPod. I remember one time my niece was visiting. She's like, over 2,000 songs. Is that all the music you have? I'm like, no, that's just my driving music. <laughs> but it, it's just the actual using of the equipment is different. Because, yeah. yeah, you know, you tend to use what you're given when you've been like, I was in the military. And sure, I talked on radios then. This is tons better because yeah. when I thought radios I used to talk on, you'd have the echo and trying to talk through your echo is very hard yeah by the way just throwing that out there so um first off i want to do a little shout out to a beer a crime a story podcast um you guys should go listen to them they are a midwestern based uh podcast and they are new friends hi guys hi guys um and uh, also wanted to say uh, that we have some more user or user, user. listener, <laughs> listener um, episodes coming up. Um, we've got Trisha, Kathy, and Doris have submitted more. Yay. So we, we love it because we love hearing the new stories. And actually, the one that I shared with you, we could say it's a shout out to a friend of mine who gave me initially the one YouTube video that I watched. Yeah. So um, Elise, she gets a shout out too. Yeah. And um, this episode is actually a a me episode, a Melissa episode. I've been, uh, so I actually um, kind of sort of stayed in the house. I didn't, I couldn't stay the whole night. Um, <laughs> but I, I'll, I'll tell my account of being in the house at the end of the episode. Right. Um, well, after at the end of the second episode. Right. This is going to be this another two-parter. Two yeah. Um, yeah. Because it is an unsolved crime. Yes. And you, we went into some of the uh, people who were suspects and why. Right. And yeah, this is definitely a... Melissa has been wanting to do this essentially <laughs> since she thought up us doing a podcast. Yes. So this, this was always going to happen. Inevitable. It, definitely. And I really did a deep dive on some of this. And so I'm hoping that you all enjoy it. And so here it is. The Velisca Axe Murders of Velisca, Iowa. Dun, dun, dun. 
<laughs> Villisca is a very small town uh, of 1,200 people, basically, as of 2019. And I think even back then it was... Yeah, you said it was 1,250 back yeah. in 1912 when yeah. this happened. So, um, Villisca was a thriving town with a close-knit community. Although there were only 2,500 re- residents in Villisca, it was a hub for developing businesses and a magnet for local tycoons who were eager to capitalize on the area's growth. It was a quiet town interrupted only by the regular trains which passed through. In addition to the many businesses, Villisca also featured a National Guard armory funded entirely by the local res- residents, the first of its kind on U.S. soil. You'd think we also like train towns, but yeah. then that really is a theme for some of these smaller towns. And when the trains came through, that's when they thrived. And then now train is only really used for not so much people movement, but stuff. Yeah. So we're going to talk first about kind of what happened the day before the murders. And this is a little timeline. Um, so this is starting on June 9th, 1912. At 6.30 a.m., Henry N. Arson calls the Reverend Ewing home to ask if a visiting minister, Reverend Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly, can stay with Reverend and Mrs. Ewing for the evening. Ewing agrees to host Kelly. 8 to 8.30 a.m., from his field, Joseph Stillinger sees Lena and Ina Stillinger walking towards Felisca for Sunday school. 11 a.m., morning worship and sermon begin at the Presbyterian Church. Morning preaching services begin at the same time at the Methodist Church. Sarah Moore's friend, Mrs. Myers, attends the Methodist Church in the morning. The Moore family attends the Presbyterian Church. At 1 o'clock p.m., Lee Van Gilder is walking in front of the Stillens' place when he sees one of the Stillens' boys go over and talk to Joe Moore. Bruce Stillens heads to the KP club room after eating supper. He stays until 7 p.m. Ed Sully goes to work at Joe Moore Implement Store as usual. There was no five-day, 40-hour week in those days. Mrs. Myers went out on her lawn and did notice did not notice any strangers around. She notes that the air is damp. Mrs. Sarah Moore stops a while to visit before walking over to the Presbyterian Church to drill the children for Children's Day exercises. Mrs. Myers is good friends with the Moores. 2 p.m. Mrs. Ewing, Sarah Moore, and Miss Hugis. Eh, Whichever. (laughs) I don't think she'll come back and tell us we used the wrong name. Probably not. Uh, They work with the children on the special service to be presented at the Presbyterian Church. Lena and Ina Stillinger are there rehearsing along with Herman, Catherine Boyd, and Paul Moore. They drill until 4 p.m. At 3 p.m., Reverend Kelly preaches at a schoolhouse in District 10 in nearby Arlington. At 3.30 p.m., Ed Sully sees Joe Moore on the south side of the square on the street near the post office. At 4.30 p.m., Sarah and Joe Moore and their four children go to visit his parents as they do every Sunday. At 6 p.m., Blanche Stillinger receives a call from Joe Moore asking if Lena and Ina can stay the night in their home. The girls are afraid to walk to their grandmothers in the dark. Blanche gives permission. Catherine and the Stillinger girls bring milk to Mrs. Ewing. They are in a hurry due to other deliveries. The girls are excited and tell her that they are planning on staying the night over at the Moore's home. Um, Yeah, the next. Yeah, making sure. (laughs) Pages here. We, we, yeah. There's a story behind that, but we don't need to go into it. No. (laughs) Uh, Mary Peckham says she sees the Stillinger girls at the Moore house and learns the girls are going to stay the night. Lawrence Gridley, 17, drives his horse and buggy into the alley and begins to unhitch it with the help of friend uh, Fred Meyer and Vern Robinson. They put the horse in the barn that they rent in the back of the Church Hills property. Joe Moore has pigs in a fenced-in area in a vacant lot in back of that he rents and is doing his chores. 
Gridley had just purchased the buggy six, six weeks prior from the Joneses. Albert Jones and Joe Moore walk up and look over at the horse as Lawrenson hitches it. They take the horse to the barn to feed him. Albert Jones says to Gridley, a pretty good looking rig you are driving. Joe and Albert check back and forth for a while looking over the horse. Gridley had seen Albert and Joe out during their chores at the same time many times. Joe and Albert take a bit about, talk a bit about the buggy talked business. Talked about. <laughs> <laughs> um, Joe said, I came pretty near selling that fellow a buggy. People talked weird too, so that doesn't help. <laughs> no, yeah, this is definitely when you're going, because you pulled a lot of like actual, you know, the timelines with as they were presented in the, the yes. court uh, documents. Right. So yeah, so don't mind us. It gets a, gets a little odd when you're speaking 1912 Iowa. Yes. <laughs> um, so then at 6.30 p.m., Mr. Anderson arrives at the Ewing house in his automobile with Reverend Kelly. Kelly wants to take the early morning train in order to get home to Macedonia. 6.52 p.m., Joe Moore's brother, Frank Fenrick Moore arrives at the Velasco Depot on the number two and goes to visit his parents. Reverend Ewing and Reverend Kelly head to the church for the young people's meeting service. At 7 p.m., the young people's meeting service begins in the rear room of the church. The young people's meeting begins at the Methodist church. The Advent church gets ready for the Holy Roller preacher in town to come and preach at their church the church is lit up and waiting he never shows holy roller preacher uh-huh. okay that cracks me up. <laughs> <laughs> and i love that basically this small town and everything is about the churches well it oh, is yeah. sunday so um 7 30 p.m mary peckham sees the moors walking to the church the moore house has been quarantined for smallpox until just this Prior to this, it was the second time the house has been quarantined. Well, that's uh, awfully interesting to talk about quarantining in the middle of uh-huh. our own pandemic. Yeah, yes. Um, Mrs. Ewing sees the Morris and the Stillinger girls head up to this to the church. Uh, evening, just says evening, so I guess no time frame, but uh, somewhere between seven and seven thirty and eight, I'm yeah. guessing. Uh, Joe's brothers, Ross Moore and his wife, Jessie, stay home for the evening with guests who are visiting their home. Mrs. F.F. Jones and her daughter, Letha, call on Mrs. Glackmeyer to ask if she would like to go to the Presbyterian church service with them. (laughs) A holy holy roller minister was scheduled at the Methodist church, so they opted to see the Children's Day program in the Presbyterian church. Letha went to ask her sister-in-law Donna if she would join them, but she and Albert had just returned from Clarinda on the train and decided not to go. The three women head on to church. At 8 p.m., the church bells ring, signaling the beginning of services. Reverend Ewing seats Reverend Kelly on the south side of the church in the south section of seats, either the first or second seat from the rear door, The rear seats were short seats enough for one or two people to sit in them. Children's Day service at the Presbyterian Church begin a bit late. Reverend Wesley Ewing sits behind Sarah Moore on the north side of the church about the second seat from the front. He recalls Joe sitting on the north side of the church along the north aisle, two or three seats from the rear. Ewing notes that the church is full. After 8 p.m., next-door neighbor H.A. Glackmeyer sees Albert Jones in the yard with his chickens, and then he sees him go into his house. Glackmeyer is playing with the children in the yard and can see the Joneses' parlor. He can see Donna and Albert Jones working at the dining table. 9 to 10 p.m., the Children's Day program at the Presbyterian Church ends. Reverend Ewing noticed noted that the Stillinger girls walked into the church on Sunday mornings from their country home two and a half miles away. An identified, unidentifiable man passes by Horton and night watchman, watchman Overman by the west side of the park. He is a small-sized fellow with heavy shoulders and wears a bell-top cap. 
Horton says it was very dark, no streetlights were on, no moon shining, and it was cloudy. Hank Horton tried, tries to speak to the fellow. He tells Overman, why don't you throw your light on that fellow? Overman replied, I don't think it is necessary. Horton said, I always make them speak to me. I guess. I guess it's part of the whole watchman thing. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know why this Horton guy is being so, um, yeah. Yeah. Pushy on Mr. Overman. The Morse Day after the service, while flower bouquets for the sick are prepared, Sarah plans to take one to give to a family across the street from their home. Uh, 14-year-old Erveline Curtis and her family walk the Moore family, Lena and Ina Stillinger, out of the church and bid them good night. Erveline said, I think we were the last to see them alive. If you haven't guessed yet, they're <laughs> they're the ones who end up dead. Um, Reverend Kelly wakes around the church for the Ewings to finish up. Kelly speaks to no one, and Ewing introduces him to no one. Ewing felt a little bit guilty that I had not asked Kelly to t- part- take part in the services. Mrs. F.F. Jones, Letha Jones, and Mrs. Glackmeyer leave the service on foot for the for home. The walk, Mrs. Glackmeyer. They walk Mrs. Glackmeyer to her door. It was a very dark night, and I said at the corner that I would be on one side and they on the other, and that I wouldn't be afraid, but they said they wouldn't, and they took me to my door going home. The street lights failed to come on at dusk. After 10 p.m., young Floyd and Orville Watt walk the Moores and Stillinger girls home to the Moores house. The house was dark. They see Joe take a key from his pocket as the door was locked. One of the little girls says she sees a man behind a tree. The Ewings with Mr. Kelly are the last to leave the church. They have two children, a girl, two, a boy, nine. Reverend Ewing lights the house, and he and Mrs. Ewing and Reverend Kelly sit and converse about the exercises of the evening. Kelly's ministerial work and English customs. At 11 p.m., after chatting with Reverend Kelly, the Ewings hold a devotional prayer and then retire for the evening. Ewing says Kelly did not betray any signs of nervousness this night. They showed Kelly with his one, with his grip in one hand to his room uh, with the balcony and get him an alarm clock, which they set for 4.30 a.m. Man, up really late and then up really early. I know. Good gracious. I just, I, when I was reading through this, I'm like, wow, you have the whole day like planned out. Mm-hmm. But that so many people in 1912 Iowa were holding such late hours. I know. I thought I mean, that was strange too. I mean. You know, I mean, I'm from, we're from farming community and the thought is, after the animals are down, because you got to start so early, you'd be yeah. going to sleep early, wouldn't you? Typically, yeah. That's, that's what I remember. I don't know if the right word is learning, yeah. but it I, just seems to be something that we learned somehow, some way. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, what do I know? There are late night people here, because yeah. we now have midnight to discuss. Yes, midnight. Kelly stands on the Ewing porch balcony outside his room. He thinks he hears something that he later describes as a thud of an axe. Sometime around midnight between uh, on Sunday, June 9th and Monday, June 10th, 1912, a person or persons entered a modest house in Villisca, Iowa, and blood bludgeoned to death eight people sleeping there, including two adults, six children, aged 5 through 12. The killings began became known as the Villisca X murders and are easily the most notorious murders in Iowa history. Josiah Moore was born December 29, 1868 in Hanover, Illinois. He married Sarah Montgomery on December 6, 1899. He was a successful businessman in Villisca, excelling at everything he lent his hand to. After he amassed reasonable wealth during his 30s, he later went on to marry and have four children with his wife Sarah. Sarah Montgomery was born April 17, 1873 in Henderson, Illinois. It's kind of funny. They both were from Illinois and then moved to the opposite side of Iowa. But mm, Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, that's much closer to Omaha than yeah, Illinois. Right. Sarah and Joe had 
four children together, Catherine, Herman, Arthur, and Paul. Uh, I Arthur, love the name Herman. <laughs> Sorry. Arthur was actually called Boyd uh, by his middle name, but first name was Arthur Boyd. Uh, Joe and Sarah always seemed affectionate to one another. If there was ever any problem, they kept it undercover, uh, testified Sarah's father when he was talking in one of the trials. Um, the Montgomerys were proud of their daughter and family. Sarah, he said, was in good health, did her own housework and washing. She was a very neat housekeeper, and she kept her children tidy. That one always <laughs> makes me laugh because you're, I guess, you know, you're doing your job if you're keeping your children tidy. I don't know. Have you ever tried to keep a child tidy? No, and I don't want to. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Having had my nieces when they were younger and stuff, and t- yeah, anyhow. So, um, they never, they never came out to our place Sunday forenoon, said Montgomery. Uh, this is Sarah's father. Um, Joe and Sarah always seemed to be helpful, happy and cheerful when they were around, just as cheerful as any people would be. The night of the murder, two of Catherine's friends spent the night, Lena and Aunt Ina Stillinger. Lena and Ina's family was very wealthy. Joseph Stillinger was a successful farmer. He owned at least 40 acres of land where he farmed alfalfa. He also grew corn and potatoes. He had more than one large barn and also cows, pigs, and other livestock. I'd be actually interested to find out how they defined wealthy back then. Because, I mean, there was a time like in the 80s, I remember farmers were considered quite wealthy when I was a kid because there were a lot of subsidies for farming. Mm-hmm. I really think, because you think about it, farming is just one of those, just, it's really hard work. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, that just kind of gets me. It's like, hmm, the most successful person, a very wealthy man is a farmer. Mm-hmm. Hey, what do I know? I know nothing. Um, so I, uh, going on to a, a break to discuss, I don't know, whether you want to call them to fat, fun facts, facts, or Tara's random ramblings and rolling around Google. Um, so of course I Googled axe murderers and Velisca was at the top, but that's probably because I would looked it up most recently. I did find um, an interesting article that went over some of the most fascinating axe murderers and um, came up with a couple that nobody was ever officially caught for, but some of them have some definite, we think it was this guy type thing. There was the New Orleans axe man. This mysterious killer was never properly identified, but his grip on New Orleans remains one of the city's most infamous tales between 19... 19- 18 and 1919, 12 people were brutally attacked by the Axeman, seven of whom perished from their injuries. People were terrified of this brutal slayer, but nobody knew who he was. Then one day, an ominous letter was delivered to the local newspapers, supposedly from the Axeman. In the letter, he claimed to be a demon from the hottest hell and warned the city that the following Tuesday night, he was going to slay again. However... He wrote, he would spare anyone who is playing jazz music. This Mm. is just so New Orleans, right? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) The following Tuesday night was one of the loudest in New Orleans history, (laughs) as jazz was playing in every home. (laughs) Well, (laughs) hmm, let's see. Somebody said they're going to kill people who aren't playing jazz. So what are you going to do? Play Play jazz. jazz. (laughs) Apparently it worked, as no one was harmed that night. Of course, there is no way to know if the letter uh, writer was the axe man and the criminal was never caught. I just thought that one was hilarious. Yeah. And then there's the servant girl annihilator. I love these names that they come up with for people. In 1885, a horrific axe murderer terrorized Austin, Texas. Eight murders occurred, all in similar fashion. The targets were all attacked in their beds with a swift blow to the head with an axe. They, then they were dragged outside where they were raped and mutilated. You, gross. Mm. The slayer often left the axe behind, but despite that evidence, the police could not catch the person responsible. Well, it's also 1885, and there's no such thing as DNA then. However, the law finally caught an extremely lucky break when the perpetrator apparently fell right into their laps. In Masontown, a man in a drunken rage attacked a young girl in a saloon. 
He grabbed the girl and started dragging her out of the saloon and into a nearby house where her screams attracted the cops. When they arrived, the man attacked the cops with a knife, and even though they tried to subdue him, nothing worked. The The cops eventually had to shoot him. A cop's bullet lodged in the man's spine and paralyzed him, and he perished the following day. It was only then that the cops noticed that the man had only nine toes, just like the servant girl Annihilator, whose bloody footprints had been left at several crime scenes. Was this the mysterious Slater? Hmm. Despite this clue, the identity of the servant girl Annihilator has never been conclusively determined. But the nine-toed man did it. Yeah. So, just one of those. I mean, there's more, of course, but there's like the Helen Jewett murder. Um, this story is a tragedy, as the police most likely had the culprit in their custody, but just couldn't convict him due to prejudice. So in 1836, an escort named Helen Jewett was found axed to death in her bed. If that wasn't bad enough, her body was slowly starting to burn from a fire that had been started on her bed. Yuck. The other escorts quickly pointed to Richard Robertson, a regular of the Jewetts, who didn't flinch in the slightest when he was taken to her remains. The axe was traced to him, as well as the cloak left behind, but even though the story got national attention for 1836, it wasn't enough for conviction because the judge insisted on telling the jury not to take into account the testimonies from the other prostitutes, saying that the women were unclean and couldn't be taken seriously. Because of that, a vicious criminal probably went free. So now I'm going to talk about the murder scene. And I'm going to do a trigger warning here because uh, when I get to one part, I'm going to talk a little bit about that. And it's a little... but We'll do trigger warning right before she goes into the part that's like... You Um, may want to fast forward a little bit. Yeah. Uh, So... Ross Moore, Joe Moore's brother, and a pharmacist in town was called to the house by the next-door neighbor, Mary Peckham. Mary had noticed the Moores were not up as they typically were, and their animals were stirring with not having been fed at their usual time. She knocked on the door with no response. The door was locked. She called Ross Moore and then took care of their animals. These are... Very wonderful neighbors. neighbors. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and of course, that whole... I love the, you know... One of the ones that we went over, it's like, oh, well, nobody's in each other's business in a small town. Oh, hello, no. All the time. They're totally in your business 100% of the time. But, you know. But some of it's for good things. In this time. Feed in this your instance, animals. It's good, yeah. And say, hey, something's not right. Something's wrong. Yeah. Rossmore unlocked the door and entered his brother's home. The house was eerily silent. Silent. It was also dark, and all the shades had been pulled down. Ross walked to the first floor bedroom and opened the door. He opened one of the curtains. The bed next to him had the sheet pulled up, but he could see someone was lying on the bed. He pulled the sheet down to see the smashed-in face of a young girl. At the foot of the bed, a bloody axe leaned against it. A lamp nearby was on the floor. And next to the axe was a slab of bacon wrapped in cloth leaning against the wall near the axe. Ross Moore had seen enough. He quickly left the house. Marshal Hank Horton was the next to enter the house. He went upstairs. It did not take long for him to come back out. He told Ross when he came out, somebody is murdered in every bed. Everyone in the house was dead, and it was a gruesome scene. Josiah Moore had been hit multiple times, estimated around 30. That's a lot of wax. Yep. With the blunt end of the axe. Sarah Moore was the only one in the house who had been hit with the blade of the axe. They they were the most severely mutilated of all the victims. Joe had no face remaining and most of his skull had been crushed. Sarah had the top of her head crushed. Then the killer reduced her face to approximately one inch slices by striking her at an acute angle with the blade of the axe. I'm thinking this person had most of his rage against the wife. Yeah, that was kind of my thought wow. too. I mean, yeah. Seriously, everybody else was blunt force trauma. Yeah. Her face was sliced. Yeah. Awesome. The four more children were found in the south room. Herman had been sleeping on a cot in the northeast corner of that room. Herman Moore was hit in the back of the head once or twice. Catherine had a bed in the southeast corner. Catherine had also been hit in the back of the head. Um, 
And she was actually on a couch. It says yeah. bed here. But she was like on a, I guess a couch cot something. I don't yeah. know. Uh, Boyd and Arthur. Boyd, or who is also Arthur. Yeah, Arthur, otherwise known as Boyd. Yeah, and, and Paul. Paul shared a bed in the northwest corner. They had been struck in the face. The children appeared to have been hit only a couple of times each with the axe. All had their faces covered with an article of clothing and the bed covers drawn up over their heads. Enos Stillinger had been hit a couple of times with the blunt end of the axe. Lena Stillinger is the only body that appears to have been moved. Now I'm going to trigger warning here. Um, the blood on the pillow indicated she was killed while lying down, but her body had been moved on the bed. Her nightgown had been pulled up and her undergarments had been disposed of underneath the bed. The bed was situated in the room north-south. Lena's head was west. She was posed with her hip on the edge of the bed. Now, a few things I read, and again, trigger warning, trigger warning. <laughs> um, the There was some suspicion that the bacon had been used as a uh, masturbation. Awesome. Yeah. Gross. Um, however. I love bacon. Please don't ruin bacon for me. <laughs> I kinda, Too late. I'll be honest. I suspect something else just because it was wrapped in cloth it was sitting up next to the axe i I don't know how i guess um flexible a slab of bacon would be well is it that it's the flexibility of the bacon or they just rub their hand on the grease of the bacon to use it as their mm, lubricant lubricant <laughs> sorry i'm still and that could be um I love bacon i love bacon <laughs> i i kind of um i don't know if I, there's the other theory is that the bacon was used to um because they figured the killer would have thought that you know there would have been dogs mm. chasing after them well the scent of the bacon might deter the scent Gotcha. So that's a was, very strong scent. Yeah. So that yeah. was one another theory. And then I also kind of wonder if the killer hadn't taken, because they actually, I guess, found another slab of bacon in the um, freezer or fridge, whatever. Whatever Ice they box. had. Icebox. Thank you. Um, <laughs> whatever they Those had back things. then. <laughs> Those things. Um, but they found the other half in the icebox. So I'm kind of wondering, too, if maybe the he had planned to take it with him as, you know, because, I mean, he's going to be running. Right. So he might have wanted to take some food along with him. I don't know. Yeah. And maybe he forgot it. Yeah. But um, some still trigger warning here and continuing though lena stillinger's nightgown had been pushed up and she'd been left exposed doctors did conclude that she had not been sexually abused thankfully um lena also had a blunt stain on her knee and an alleged defensive wound on her arm yeah because you do wonder the who was killed first versus last because right somebody would hear something eventually and wake up yeah um, a few bizarre clues were found. The The first was the uh, four p- pound piece slab of bacon. It's a lot of bacon. It is a lot of bacon. <laughs> Leaning against the wall next to the axe in the first floor bedroom, Joe Moore's pocket watch had been found on the dresser. A short length of broken chain was found on the floor. The murderer also had searched the dresser drawers for pieces of clothing to cover the mirrors in the house and the glass in the entry doors. On the kitchen table was a plate of uneaten food and a bloody bloody bowl of water, believed to have been used by the killer to clean up after the murders. Did they have running water in the house or did they have to bring water in from outside? I'm not sure. I don't remember. Yeah. Hmm. Because that could have been go out, get some water, bring in the bowl, and use it to clean yourself up. Could be. Yeah. Um, Newspapers contradict the amount, the account of where the axe was found. According to several newspapers, the axe was found in the upstairs children's bedroom. 
So I don't know Versus exactly. The parents' bedroom. Or, well, and actually, I think the original account that I saw was it was in with Lena and Ina in the first floor bedroom. Gotcha. So, because the way it went, the, the parents' bedroom was upstairs, and then they, there was the children's bedroom. I think Catherine's bedroom was on the first floor, but the girls who had stayed the night were staying in Catherine's bedroom. Because well, she went up and stayed with the rest of her family upstairs on the cot or yeah. couch or whatever. whatever. Yep. Uh, the well, that's a, a shitty sleepover. You're supposed to sleep over with your friends. Yeah, anyway, but whatever. I think, you know, space. space. <laughs> Sorry, we both come to the same conclusion. It, it, it's a, it was a small house, that's for sure. I mean, having been in there, it's a very small house. Um, the ceiling in the parents' bedroom and the children's upstairs room showed gouge marks apparently made by the upswing of the axe. So also a short, uh, short ceilings. It was, yeah. Uh, there was indication that the killer may have visited Joe and Sarah Moore's bedside more than once. Blood had dripped from Joe Moore into one of Sarah's shoes. The shoe was knocked over at some point before the gl- blood had congealed. There was also evidence that Sarah Moore had been struck again after blood had stopped circulating. Extra hate towards mom there. Yeah. Yeah. Contrary to many rumors, both in 1912 and today, there was no evidence at the scene that the killer hid in any of the closets, waiting until everyone was asleep. No fingerprints. Or, sorry, no footprints, no cigar or cigarette butts, no tobacco juice were found, even. um, Yeah, even though such talk had had occurred all over uh, Montgomery County in the years of the investigation that followed the murder. Because, yeah, that was a big thing. Yeah. How did they get in? Because he was known to lock his door. Right. Um, And so some people think that he had been in while they were at church. you know, and there's, wait wait. yeah, so there's really, they don't really know how he got in. Of course, he could have waited in one of those uh, and just not been a smoker. <laughs> Sorry. Right. <laughs> and that's true. Um, mm-hmm. But there were rumors that they had found cigarette butts. That's not true. Right. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And so um, me being me, I <laughs> went and did a search of notable axe murderers and um, you know what it's pretty freaking long <laughs> i found 38 one of them being Velisca, three being the ones that i um summed up in the last round of facts and it's just amazing to look at these time frames i mean the first one they they gave and you wonder there's only 38 because they didn't like really go into an extensive let's look at europe apparently um weno von rohrbach the first master of the Livonian Brothers of the Sword was killed by the Knight Wickbert with an axe in a quarrel in 1209. I just love the names. The names cracked me up. You're like, Wickbert and Rohrbach, Livonian Brothers of the Sword. Anyhow, there's also the Mary Russell, which is a ship, the the captain of which, um, William Stewart, dispatched seven members of his crew with a crowbar and axe in 1828. That one sounds not so nice. Hmm. Frankie Stewart Silver, first woman executed by the state of North Carolina for the murder of her husband, Charles, in 1833. This one's pretty hinky. There's there's a lot of presumption that she wasn't actually the killer. They just wanted to find somebody and get them hmm. quick. Because um, I looked into some of this on the side just because, and maybe we'll do one on this later, but uh, it was a large farm. He was a big guy. She was a small woman. How did she hack him to pieces and then dispatch pieces of a body all over the property? It would have taken a long time because yeah. she was really like not a hundred pounds or something. She was very wow. sm- slight, but she was still hanged. Yay. The Helen Helen Jewett, Jewett, the prostitute in New York City, who was allegedly murdered by Richard P. Robinson. He was tried and acquitted in 1836. We talked about that one. Because, you know, those dirty prostitutes. The Smutty Nose Island Murders in 1873. I just like the word Smutty Smutty Nose. In which Louis Wagner was tried, convicted, and hanged for the murder of two Norwegian immigrant women. One was killed with a chair and the other with an axe on an island off the coast of Maine. 
The Harlson family murders. Nebraska serial killer Stephen D. Richards murdered Mary Harrelson and her three children with an axe while they were sleeping on the morning of November 3rd, 1878. Richards was later captured and executed April 26th of 1879. You'll see there's a lot in like the early times. I mean, we don't, I didn't see a lot that went past the early 1900s. There's a whole bunch in here, but, um, this was an interesting one in Sri Lanka, Kamundi Boat Massacre, an incident where at least, at least 23 minority Sri Lankan Tamil men, women, and children on a ferry boat named Kamundini sailing from the island of Delft to the island of, I can't even come up with this one, mm. Nyanathivu, were alleged to have been hacked to death with a hatchet by the Sri Lankan Navy in, 18, in 1985. That's one of the more recent ones hmm. um uh back in 1949 yaroslav halen a soviet ukrainian anti-fascist writer killed with an axe by a ukrainian nationalist in his home office that's yucky hmm. yeah there's just tacoma washington the clut murders jake bird was convicted and executed for uh murdering bertha clut and her daughter beverly in tacoma yeah there's just a lot Sorry, I just was like, this is really interesting. I found some of them like Ramel Safarov, an Azerbaijani soldier, was hacked to death and almost decapitated by an Armenian soldier during a NATO partnership for peace training in Budapest. Hmm, I don't think that partnership was going too well at that time. Hungary returned him to Azerbaijan in 2012, where he was immediately pardoned and given a hero's welcome and causing an inter international incident, so... Yeah, we don't like the, Ar the, the Armenians, don't like the Azerbaijanis, and yay. Gotta love it. Um, there's this one that's actually pretty crazy that I wouldn't mind looking into. Mikhail Pop Popkov, a Russian policeman and serial killer known as the Angarsk Maniac. He murdered 77 women and one man in the areas of Angarsk, Irkutsk and Vladivostok between 1992 and 2010. Ah. While killing people, he used an axe along with other instruments and objects as a weapon. He was arrested in 2012 and sentenced to life imprisonment twice in 2015 and 2018, respectively. Hmm. You're just like, those are interesting. Anyhow, there's just a lot of axe murders. Yeah. Um, the... the uh, the man from the train killed entire families in their sleep, arriving and departing by train. Alleged existence and possible but far from proven identity hypothesized over a hundred years after the murders by analysis of contemporary records showing supposedly common modus operandi for many unconnected murders. And I think that's the Such one. Such as the Liska X murders yes. that we're talking about. Yep. Yeah, The Man from the Train, there's a bunch of different books on that one. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I printed out all of these crazy ones <laughs> that I found, like Henry von Breda in South Africa. There's just a lot of interesting, oh, the North Korean uh, one, the Arthur Boniface and Mark Barrett of U.S. Army soldiers were killed in the Korean demilitarized zone by North Korean forces with their own axes they were using to trim trees in what the Koreans called the Korean axe murder incident. <laughs> like, um, how can an axe murder be? It's just an incident. It's just a little <laughs> thing. No big deal. Whoops. Wrong guys. Anyhow, but yeah, there's a lot of interesting axe murders. But when I, I actually take a second, I was trying to look for like, um, the differences, you know, how much do we have in the U.S. as axe murders? And it's funny, while I can find all these specific discussions of specific incidents, finding actual data on axe versus stabbing murders, it seems they're all grouped together. Hmm. So that's on my list of things to do the next time I have, like, I don't know, a vacation where I'm sitting in my travel trailer when it's raining and I'm bored. <laughs> we'll see if I can find something. So in the aftermath, um, word of the mur murder spread quickly. Of course, you're in a small town, so word does spread very fast. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm sure as soon as the first person went in the door. Yeah. Hundreds of townspeople gathered at the Moore House, and between several dozen and over 100 people went through the home destroying evidence. Awesome. So 
that's part of the reason I think that this has never been solved. A young officer tried to keep them out, but he was no match for the mob of these people determined to see the horror inside. One visitor even took a piece of Josiah Moore's skull as a souvenir. Lovely. Uh, Militia was also called to contain this already disrupted crime scene. Well, you know, it's it's interesting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we obviously... It's somebody they know. It's somebody so. they know. They're, they want to see it. It's It's, yeah... There's a reason we have to put crime scene tape up. Yeah. Looky lose. The Stillinger girl's mother, Sarah, was devastated by the deaths of her children. I read an account of her passing shortly after the girls, but after further research, I found that is actually not true. She passed away in 1945. I'm certain she was never the same after that fateful day. January 1913 article stated that the Stillingers had another tragedy their home had burned down so this is a little side note that I have as I was doing my research directly beneath one article I read an old newspaper was the following ad most disfiguring skin eruptions scrofuls pimples rashes etc are due to impure blood Burdock blood bitters as a cleansing blood tonic is well recommended. One dollar at local stores. I had to look up scrofuls. Scrofula. Also called cervical tuberculosis lymphadenitis. Whatever. Something. Is it (laughs) type of... Lymphadenitis, it looks like. Yeah, is a type of tuberculosis infection. It is it's caused by the same bacteria that causes pulmonary tuberculosis. Uh, tuber- tuberculosis is a highly infectious bacterial infection. It usually affects the lungs and can lead to significant lung damage if not death. Yeah, um, I like the scrofula. That's an interesting name. Yeah, scrofules. I just yeah. I saw Blood that and bitters. I had to giggle. I'm like, okay, yeah. I got it mention that one snake oil sales so have happened for a long time one of the men who entered the house was a man named bruce stillians bruce worked with the local newspaper he brought a small camera and taking photos of the scene ross moore saw the camera and had an altercation with the man taking the camera and smashing it into pieces unfortunately damaging the film well that was the only pictures that have been taken of the crime scene and so who knows what would have happened if they still had those uh wm mcclurry was an assistant warden at the federal penitentiary in leverworth kansas when the Velisca murder occurred as a leading expert in the very new f- field of fingerprinting, he was asked to come to Velisca to investigate the case. He arrived on June 11th, studied the murder scene, and left on Wednesday, June 12th. He was unable to find any usable fingerprints, probably because there were like over 100, 100 people, people wandering the, the scene. Yeah. Um, and. But he did do a complete and careful study of blood evidence left at the scene. Based on the analysis, he believed the killer was left-handed and had wielded the axe one-handed. It was a large axe, at least four pounds, five ounces. So how many strikes did he say hit the... 30 30. for the husband. That's really... That's got to be insanely tiring. Yeah. So... After this, um, they had sent out bloodhounds trying to find out, you know, like, where had the killer gone? Um, You know, it was kind of hard, especially since there had been so many people throughout the house. But they did uh, follow a trail that uh, went through several areas and into the nowaday, nowaday, no. Notaway, oh, whoever. I don't yeah, know. Sorry. Sorry about that. Um, and the more Stillinger funeral services were held in Velisca's Town Square on June 12, 1912, with thousands in atten- attendance. National Guardsmen blocked the street as a hearse moved towards the firehouse where the eight victims lay. Their caskets, not on display during the funeral, were transported by hearse because. 
There mm. were not enough hearses for all the caskets. Some of the children were transported by horse and wagon to the Velisca Cemetery for burial. A mass grave had been opened to receive the entire Moore family. The funeral cortege was 50 carriages long. And this is kind of a sad aftermath part. Um, before this, there were a very small number of African-American families living in Villisca. After this, they were chased out and not allowed in town. Uh, well, yeah. So uh, now we're going to do a little uh, reading back and forth <laughs> as I found the coroner's inquest. Jessie Moore was the wife of victim Josiah Moore's brother Ross in 1912 it was not uncommon for family members to assist in the preparation of bodies for burial and that was Jesse's primary role in the ex-murder mystery Oof, I would not want that job uh-uh. as you will see the bulk of the interrogation focused on her knowledge of early suspects although the other family members were not allowed to view the bodies due to the mutilation. Joe Moore's mother did spend some time in the firehouse with Joe's covered body holding his hand. Aww. So, um, what is your full name, Mrs. Moore? Jessie. Mrs. Jessie, you are the wife of Ross Moore. Yes, sir. And Ross Moore is a brother of Joe Moore. Yes, sir. Person of many words. <laughs> You may first, in your own words, tell about this Monday morning, last Monday morning, June 10th, about discovering something. Why, Mrs. Peckham, a neighbor of theirs, called me and wanted to know if there was anything that happened down at Mr. Moore's father. He was in poor health, and I told her I did not believe there was because they would have called up, and so I told her then that I would call up his store, and I did. And Mr. Selly said he was not able to get to the people nor get to his home, and he came down to the store finally and said that he would call up at her people's goodness mr montgomery or at mr moore's and he called up and told me that they had been neither place and then i said well i think perhaps i better go down so i did and he called up in a little while and said that he could not find them by that time i had got there and i thought perhaps after a little while they called up and told me not to go to creston i was just ready to go to creston and they told me not to go and in a few minutes one of the neighbors came over and told me what had happened i think perhaps that is all i know did you go to the house yesterday yes i was there just a little bit i was in one of the rooms for some pictures that they wanted for print now this is the coroner's questions that was afterwards. That was sometime after they had entered. Oh, yes. Hour or two afterwards? Yes. You have not heard anything about the family affairs that would lead you to believe? No. No one else knows. Got any enemies? No. No, I never knew. I never knew he had any en enemies. None whatsoever. Was you to their church Sunday evening? <laughs> no, I was not. I did not go. I wasn't there in the evening. By Mr. Ratcliffe. Do you know any, of any matter of business or otherwise wherein he was in trouble with anyone? No, sir. Not a one. Did you ever hear him speak of having any enemies? No, sir. I had not. I had never heard him speak ill of anyone. You ever hear him speak of anyone else? No. This is by Dr. Lomas. Mrs. Moore, do you know when was the last time any of the Moores ever heard from Sam Moyer? Well, Fern, that is the second girl, you know, had a letter from him, and I can't tell you the date. It has been over two weeks. Two weeks since? Yes. He told her he was in Oregon. Where in Oregon? He told her he would go and visit the his um this Harry Moore, that is the other brother, Ross's brother, thought he would visit him, but I don't know where he is, what town or anything more. I could not say how long it has been. How long has it been since you say? <laughs> You're like, wait, didn't she just say? <laughs> um, that little boy has been gone. Well, really, I could not tell you. Is the little boy with him at the present time? No, the little boy is with his son, his child's half-brother at, I believe, 
New Howick, Nebraska. What town? New Howicka, down by Nebraska City. Were you acquainted with Sam Moyer? Yes, I was. Was I acquainted with him? Yes, I visited his home. What it was his disposition? Okay, this is fun. Well, he was a free man. He was very kind to his family when he was with them. They really had more than they should have had. He did not deny them anything. He was a, this has been redacted, man that redacted, said very little, and always seemed very pleasant in his home or while I was there. I don't know what it would be. I was just a visitor. He had left his family once before this? Yes. You know how long he was away at that time? He was away a year. He came back on Old Settler's Day. Just disappeared. Did not hear anything further from him until he came back again? No, never a word, except once his wife did, and he just came here Old Settler's Day. To your knowledge, did Sam Moyer and Joe Moore ever have any trouble? No, not that I ever knew of. How long has it been since Sam Moyer left his family this last time? Well, let me see. I know it was in the spring. I can't tell you whether it was April or May. One or two years since. Yes, sir. He left his family and heard nothing of him. They say he sent them a letter and sent them some money to pay his lodge dues, and I believe paid them and told them not to write that he would write to them. He was going west. He was with the railroad company of some some kind on carpenter work, and he would write them again, and they never heard from him again from that time until just lately. You know, when the girl had the letter from his occasionally. Sam Moyer has one brother here? He was... He has one brother and one sister living out south of town. What is his sister's name? Cora. Is she married? No. The brother, that is he. She keeps house for him. This is by the corner? What is the man's name? I believe his name is Gum Moyer or something. I just heard of it. Gum or Gun. I just heard it and they just called him that. This is by Mr. Ratliff. You know what place in Oregon this letter is from? No, I do not. I do not know that place. Did you see that letter? No. This is from Dr. Lomas. Is it true that he had been roaming a good deal? Yes, he has been in Dakota. I can't tell you the name of the town. He has been having contract work. He has been building the bridges, taken out, work of that kind. You know, I can't remember the name because I did not pay attention. Do you know anything this Van Gilder? No, I just knew him. My friends, Mrs. Moore, this lady that was murdered, we were very close friends. When she was sick, and of course, I think he says that he thought I was there, and she just told me that he was a mean man, that he was a drinking man, and this time she would never go back. That is the only conversation that ever passed between us. You don't know of him being here? No, I do not know anything of it. I never saw the man to know anything of it. Never mentioned it to you? No. And this is Mr. Ratcliffe. As far as you can remember, what was the nature of his last visit here? Of whom? Sam Moyer. Well, let me see. Well, I could not give it at all. I can't remember. You said it was on an old settler's day. Well, he has been here since that. This is a question by a jury. Juror. Has he been here since the death of his wife? No, they never heard of him. Until the children have been hearing from him? I think his oldest girl, the one that went to Sioux Rapids or Sioux Falls, he came to see her. They have evidently heard from him, and he never even asked for the rest of the family or the wife. And when she mentioned it, he never paid any attention. This is from another juror. Was he of a rather surely disposition? Yes, he was very quiet. He seemed, he always seemed to be as though he would be a a surely man if he got mad. Do they mean surly? I think so. I think they mean surly. It says surely. Of course, I don't know. I never saw him angry and I was not so very well acquainted with him. Just, only just meeting him, but he was always very pleasant when I knew him, but seemed to be that kind of man if he would get mad, he could be. Now, Mrs. Moore, do you know whether he has a, 
ever visited with Joe or not, whether he has ever been in their house? I do not know. Is it not true, Mrs. Moore, at the time of Mrs. Moyer's sickness and death that Joe took an active part in protecting for the expense of her sickness and death and was in a measure assisting and establishing to care for the family? Well, I could not say as to that. Of course, all the boys, you know, expected a great deal. But I rather think when the sister died that he naturally paid this time. I know my husband settled when the baby died. He had all that time attended to the business part of it, and I rather think that Joe attended to it. Is it not true that at the time Sam Moyer deserted his family, that there was, well, five children in the family and another expected shortly? Yes. That he left the family and after sending back them back this letter, never paid any further attention to them until after the wife and baby died and were buried and never even inquired into the place of death or nature of the death? I never heard as to that. And had at that time he deserted his family, that his fa- his wife was not only, but was also suffering, suffering from a kidney disease? I don't know. He surely knew that. He must have known her condition, of course, but I don't know as to that other. Is his daughter who had the letter from him reside in town at the present time? Yes, it was Fern, the biggest child. She was at home. She told me she got a letter from him, and seeing it was from Oregon. You don't know whether he gave her an address to write to or anything? No, I do not. And that was the coroner's inquest. (laughs) That is a very confusing coroner's inquest. (laughs) Yeah. I I read it before, and you said, hey, let's do this as a a question-answer, and I was like, it's like the most confusing thing I've ever read. <laughs> I really don't know. So this is um, the sister-in-law to the family. And yeah, she's mm-hmm. very inconsistent. And the words they use are very really strange. It's, you know, I think they definitely spoke very different in 1912. Right. And it's just one of those things. They had this coroner's inquest, which we'd we'd figured out from other um, mm-hmm. things that we did looking at old-timey um, coroner's inquests is that it's just so different than what we think of. We think of law and order. Right. We think of, and by the way, it's back. Sorry. <laughs> um, I may be a law and order buff, so I'm so happy the original returned. And by the way, this this is basically the end of part one. Part one, um, yes. Sorry, we're, we're going gonna... to uh, be doing uh, part two in two weeks. Right. So, so but anyhow, this, this whole thing was... It's very surprising to me. You know, they didn't... I mean, okay, it's... Let's go back through. The house has been trampled through, so there's zero evidence. All they can do is go off of what people had to say about the time. Yeah. And they're trying to look into the Sam Moyer guy as a potential suspect. So that's why they were grilling grilling her on Sam Moyer. And it's just... It seems like just straws. They're just yeah. grasping at straws. And, and when we get into part two, there were so many suspects. I mean, the list of suspects is kind of insane. Um, and we kind of sort of touched on it, but we'll go into it more the next yeah. one. The the whole discussion of all the black families were run out of town because there's, yeah. if you look through the history of how we've looked at vagrancy, it, how we adopted it in the United States, we really did adopt it heavily with the black code mm-hmm. after slavery. Very so there's the, just that suspicion for... Yeah. <sighs> and I, I did see, yeah, as I was reading, there was a lot that I didn't include because I was just like, okay, this is just people being really horrible. But People sucking. Well, I mean, again, there is good reason we use crime scene tape and officers secure scenes. Right. Because stuff like this, you're never going to get a good solution when zero fingerprints can be figured out because everybody's touched everything yeah the entire town or county has now walked through the house through the yeah. whole house glaring you know gaping at the dead bodies even taking disgusting. some of the skull i mean <gasps> what is wrong with people oh that gives a new meaning to grave robbing you didn't yeah. even rob a grave you robbed it straight for his dead head <laughs> <laughs> sorry so that's the episode (laughs) lovely isn't it (laughs) thank you for listening 
listening to Nothing Happens in a Small Town, where things do happen, and small towns are not the quiet, quaint places you think they are. And people are vultures (laughs) when someone (laughs) dies. Um, You can donate and help us keep going, and you will also get um, extra content. I will... Uh, I've created a page on my website where it gives pictures and links to some of our research research and um, actually our notes for the episode so that you can read through that. Um, so if you would like any of that, you can go to our <laughs> Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash nothing happens in a small town. Our Instagram username profile is nothing happens in a small town. Our Twitter name and profile is nothing happens in a small town at N H I A S T. Our Facebook page is nothing happens in a small town at N H I S T. 2021. That's a mouthful. <laughs> and our and Gmail. Gmail is nothing happens in a small town at gmail.com. So thank you. Thank you for listening.